is this heaven? It's Iowa. It's one of the best lines in, in all of movies. Is this heaven? It's Iowa. Uh, a couple weeks ago, a baseball game between the White Sox and the Yankees was played in the cornfield at Dyersville, Indiana. And uh, before the game, I, I'm curious, was anyone at the game? No. I know there were some people. For, why are we laughing? What? Did I say Indiana? <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a baseball game <laughs> played in Dyersville, Iowa, between the White Sox and the Yankees. And I, I don't know how that game ended. I don't really care. <laughs> but before the game, Kevin Costner, it was so cool, came out of the cornfield and onto the field and all the, the Yankees and the Sox came out of the cornfield and Costner gave this pregame speech and at the end of the speech, he asked the question, is this heaven? And wiped the tears out of our eyes. If you remember from the movie Field of Dreams, uh, Costner's uh, character, Ray Kinsella, gets this, this voice that says, if you build it, they will come. And so inexplicably, he takes his cornfield and he turns it into a baseball field. And sure enough, they come. These baseball players who have long been deceased start emerging from the cornfield and, and they play baseball out on this field. There's something about this baseball field that that has seemed to open up a passageway between this world and the next, or what we might say between earth and, and heaven. Is this heaven? No, it's, it's Iowa, but it sure does have some reflections of heaven. The fictional movie about a baseball field that serves as a, a conduit to heaven is actually, you're going to be surprised by this, it's actually a biblical idea. But in the Bible, it's not a baseball field that serves as that, that conduit. It's a table. It's a table. It's a, a, a meal. It's a shared meal. There's something we're going to see from the scriptures about sitting down together to share a meal at a table that serves as a little taste of heaven. No, it's not heaven, but it is a little taste of heaven. So this morning we are beginning a, a new sermon series titled Come to the Table. And, and the main reason I've chosen this series at this time is because of our ministry starting Wednesday night, uh, the, the table. And, and so this is going to dovetail with that beautifully. The table, as I said earlier, is picking up where supper's at second left off, but now we've added a few elements. We're going to worship together. We're going to pray together. There's going to be a short Jesus story uh, during that, that evening, and really what you could call it is church. Now, for us today, that might seem to us a little odd, like that's an odd way to do church, but what I want to say is if we were to transport 2,000 years ago to the early church and... and or actually, if they were to transport here and they would see the way that we would do church, they're the ones who would be thinking, that's a little odd. Remember uh, earlier this, this summer, we studied the passage from Acts chapter 2? That's how they did church. They met together in one another's homes. 
They broke bread together. They worshiped. They prayed. They studied the scriptures of the apostles. This was the early church. It was a dinner church. The early church didn't just invent that on their own. They took their cues from Jesus. Uh, if you've spent any time at all in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you see how much Jesus does ministry around a table. I knew that he did it a lot, but, but this past week I went to the Gospel of Luke and just chapter by chapter I went through and made a mark of every time he sits down for a meal with someone. It's astounding. In fact, it is so frequent that if we were going to describe how did Jesus do ministry on here on earth, you cannot exclude the fact that he used the table. The, the table, the shared meal, was his primary way of doing ministry. During the day, he did a ministry of healing and miracles. At night, he gathered around a table. This is what he did. This is what we're going to do. If it were appropriate... I would, I would say that the, there's almost something magical that happens at a table and a shared meal. But magic is not the right word. We don't believe in magic. So a better way to say it is there is something that is deeply, profoundly spiritual and transcendent and divine that happens around a table. God shows up. He shows up and he works in powerful ways. So I'm really excited about this sermon series. Is the table heaven? No, it's not. But it might be one of the closest things on this side of heaven that God has given us to have a little taste of heaven. Join me as we pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word. And uh, we lift up this series to you and pray that you would use it to impress upon us uh, who you are, uh, who we are, and the, the hope that you offer this world. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm so glad that we caught that little Indiana thing. Because you know what would happen? I'd go home today and I'd look at this live stream and that would come and it would ruin my day. So, so thank you. Uh, as I've thought about this series, I, I think the appropriate and necessary place for us to begin is the beginning. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 is this majestic passage that describes God's creation of the world. He creates light, and then he creates sky, and he creates water, and he separates the, the two from, from one another. Then he creates ground, and he creates vegetation. On day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, he begins to create creatures. He be, creates birds of the air and fish of the sea and, and all the living things that move along the, the ground. And then on day six, the capstone of his creation, he creates the man and the woman in his image and in his likeness. The man and the woman are glorious. They're a reflection of God, but they are not God. God creates them in such a way that they are not self-sufficient. We are not self-sufficient. And nowhere is that more evident in the fact that we need to eat to survive. 
God creates us in such a way that we need to eat to continue living. And so Genesis 1 continues with a passage that we often forget is even part of Genesis 1. It ends with one of God's greatest gifts. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. There are some vegans and vegetarians in our midst, midst who are saying, see, look at that. There's no mention of meat. It's coming. Uh, so God provides food. So unlike the animal kingdom, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the, the creatures that move along the ground, unlike them, we are created in the image and likeness of God. The animals of the kingdom, they can't say that. We're created in the image and likeness of God. But like the animal kingdom, we, our survival is dependent upon food. We're not self-sufficient. Quite simply, to say it most simply, apart from the fuel of food, we die. The, the, the car stops moving when the tank hits empty. Now, you and I don't think about that a lot because we are blessed to live in a place and at a time where there is plenty of food for many of us, a lot of food, more food, more fuel than we need. We're, we're leaking fuel. My, the tank on my car is getting bigger and bigger and I'm working to get it smaller. So consequently, one of the, the impacts of that is that we lose touch of how dependent upon food we are for survival because we have so much. But what we maybe fail to, to remember that a lot of the world knows, and there's people in this, in this country that knows, that know is, is that food governs everything. Absolutely everything. Food governs where you live. It governs what you do. It governs your time. It governs whether you work one job, two jobs, three jobs. You'll work as many jobs as necessary if that's what it's going to take to get food. If we could catalog all of the prayers in the entire world that are going up today, I have no doubt that the number one prayer would be a prayer for a meal. I mean, think about it. There are people who are waking up who don't have the promise of, a, of the next meal, and they are praying urgently for God to provide that next meal. It's not coincidental that in the center of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, one of the very first petitions is, give us this day our daily bread. God created the system. He created that dependency in us. He knows that we need Food, that we are not self-sufficient. If you're familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, this triangle that shows all of the needs that we have as humans, at the very base of the triangle, the number one thing we need, more than anything else, is simply food and water. It's food and water. And if we don't have that, none of the rest matters. I mean, you can be an emotionally put-together person that, that manages your emotions wonderfully. You can have this 
fantastic job. You can be, in the words of Maslow, self-actualized at the top of the triangle. But if you don't have food and you don't have water, nothing else matters. Because food is so absolutely critical to our existence, every meal, every time we sit down for a meal, it's like a rebirth. It's like God extending us uh, the promise of, of more life. It's how God sustains us. Every meal is a life-saving operation. Now, again, we don't think this way. But every meal is a life-saving operation in which we receive anew the gift of life. So here it comes. Later, following the flood... The, the Noah and his family, they come out of the ark, and God enters into another uh, covenant with them. And this time in Genesis 9-3, God declares, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. And so if you think about it, at that point, every meal that involved some sort of animal, whether it's a bird or a creature or a fish, every meal that involved an animal became a sacrifice, a sacrifice of one living creature for another living creature. Now, this became so real to me a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, as you all know, I do a lot of fishing. I was in a fishing tournament, a bass fishing tournament, and I caught a fish, and it was a monster fish, and as I'm reeling it in, I'm thinking, this fish is going to win me the tournament. And I get it into my net, and it's huge, but the only problem is it's not a bass. It's a walleye. And, and on any other day, that would be awesome. But when you're trying to win a bass tournament, the walleye doesn't help. So the, the walleye swallowed my lure so deeply that when I'm trying to get it out, I ended up really hurting the fish. And, and what I came to find out is I ended up killing the fish. And so I, I finally got the lure out, and there was little life left in the walleye, so I thought, okay, we're going to try and put him in the water and hold him there, and, and he's moving a little bit, but uh, I let him go, and he just stays there. And so in time, I was like, all right, so I've got two options. Just leave this dead fish in the lake. How foolish would that be? Or take him home. And so I put my stringer through him, and I'm in a kayak, so I'm really close to the water, and so he's right next to me in the water for the rest of the day on my stringer. And as I'm fishing the rest of the day, I'm watching the life ebb out of this fish. So now, later that evening, I had a fantastic meal. I mean, great meal. And Karen, uh, my wife, um, prays uh, before we eat. And she prayed something to the effect, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, Lord, thank you that this fish uh, died. <laughs> so that we could have this meal. She probably said it more eloquently than that, but that was essentially what she prayed. And, and it, was so, it was so real for me in a way that I never experienced when I put the fish sticks in the air fryer, you know, and out comes this breaded wonderfulness. Uh, I don't think that a fish had to die so that I could have this meal. Every meal is a miniature salvation event. I mean, we're talking about the language of salvation. What do we say? Jesus Christ died so that we might live. He gave his life so that we might live. 
When we eat food, when we eat some creature that died, it's so that we might live. It's a miniature salvation event. And so for the Jewish family that would gather together at the table and they'd pray, this is what they would say. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth every time. And embedded in that prayer is this recognition that there's one thing that you and I cannot create. We cannot create food. Now, we live under the illusion that we can. Uh, we live under the illusion that I can plant a garden and I can make a tomato or I can plant a field and harvest corn or I can raise pigs or whatever it is. But I think the farmers would be the first to testify that there's only so much that we can control. There are variables outside of our control. Uh, if there's no rain, they say there's no grain. So God is the one who provides the food. Farming is an act of faith. It's an act of faith that God will provide, that he will bring forth bread from the earth. When you gather for lunch today or you gather for dinner tonight and you pray, God, thank you for this food. That is not a throwaway line. That's not like some empty, insignificant prayer that, that we just say so that we can get on to the meal. That's not a prayer that we need to dress up with a whole lot of other words. I mean, think about what you are praying. To pray, thank you for this food, is to say, God, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you that you are sustaining me, that you are, that you are good and that you are faithful. So it's because of our need for daily food it's because God provides for us that the table is a thin place. And by thin place, think field of dreams, think cornfield, that, that place that, that serves as the bridge between heaven and earth. The table is a thin place. It's a place where the veil between heaven and earth is thin, where we can almost see to the other side. It's a spiritual place. It's a transcendent place at the table, God is the host. God's the host, and we come as the guest. The table is the place where, where you and I come in complete dependence, and we receive something. Listen to this. We receive something we have not earned. Now, again, that flies contrary to everything we, th we think. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat, so it sure sounds like we earn it. I go to the grocery store and I buy food with money that I've earned. I go to a restaurant and I pay money for a, for a meal. It seems like we earn it. But again, God is the one who is providing the food. God provides. We receive. We are completely dependent, self-sufficient. If you want to stiffen your neck over that in pride, no, I, I pay my own way. I earn my, my, my next meal. I think a better po posture to come is one of simple adoration, thanksgiving, and worship for God's provision. Blessed are you, Lord, O oh God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And if at the meal there's a cup of wine, which often there is, blessed are you, Lord, O oh God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit 
of the vine. Is this heaven? No. But if you look through scripture, it turns out that one of the most dominant images for heaven is that of a feast. When the Bible talks about heaven, it often talks about a meal. And so we're going to look at one of those passages. This comes from Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6, six through 9. In this passage, Isaiah is prophesying, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The prophet Isaiah is often difficult to understand because it's awful, often difficult to understand. Is he talking about future events? Is he talking about present events? Sometimes he's talking about both events that are present and uh, foreshadowing of the future. In this passage, he's talking about future events. This prophecy, he's talking about end times, a banquet for all people, the destruction of the evil shroud that is so oppressive, the swallowing of death forever. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more disgrace. If you're hearing revelation, well done. This is the Old Testament equivalent of that passage at the end of Revelation, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth where there's going to be no more tears, no more sorrow, where death will be swallowed up. So what Isaiah is doing is he's giving this picture of a, the glorious future that we have, and the, at the center of the vision is a meal. It's a feast. It's a picture of abundance. It's a picture of of fullness. It's a picture of what the Hebrews called shalom. Shalom, when we hear shalom, we think like the absence of conflict, the absence of war, but shalom is so much more richer than that. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of, of wholeness, maybe what we call joy, complete and utter joy. Heaven this vision of a feast is a place where we will hunger no more. Heaven is the place where the anguish and ache that every single one of us knows is gone. Heaven is the place where there's more than enough, always more than enough. Heaven's a place where God is the host and we come as guests, the place where we celebrate our dependence upon him. That doesn't stir in us some, some pride and some resistance. We celebrate that we are dependent upon God. Heaven is a place where the table is much larger than we think. It's going to be that place where people from every tribe, every nation, every language gather together around the same table and commune with God and commune with one another. So Isaiah saw it as a feast. But not only Isaiah... So remember, this is a, a theme that's throughout the whole scripture. When we look at the life of Jesus, he, he had the same image that Isaiah had. There's this one occasion where Jesus meets this Roman centurion, this Roman soldier. 
And the soldier says to him, my servant's sick. He needs to be healed. Can you heal him? And Jesus said, I will. I'll come. And the Roman centurion says, no, I'm not worthy to have you in my house as a guest, but I know if you just say the word, he'll be healed. And Jesus is so impressed by this, this man's faith that he says this. He says, I tell you the truth. I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, Jesus also has a vision of heaven as a feast. Every single meal that you and I enjoy around a table is a foreshadowing of that great meal that awaits us all. This morning, we have the opportunity to come to this table for communion, and there is no greater meal where it's more evident that this is a, a foreshadowing of a meal that we have uh, waiting for us. Every time we celebrate communion, part of our liturgy is to share that this meal is a, a feast of three things. It's a feast of remembrance. So when we come to the table, one of the things we do is remember. We remember that Jesus gave his life so that we might live. We see it in the bread, the breaking of the bread, and, and in the cup. But we also come and we say it's a feast of communion. We believe that God meets with us. In some traditions, they would call this an ordinance. We call it a sacrament. And the difference between the two is that we believe God actually meets with us and imparts grace to us. But the third thing we say is that this is a feast of hope. It's a pledge. It's a foretaste. It's a very small, symbolic little way of God saying there's a feast to come. The best is yet to come. So how do we come to this table today? We come humbly. We come knowing that this is a meal that we have not earned. There is no amount of good works that you can do to earn God's favor. This is a gift that he gives you. He gives you his grace free of charge. He's paid the debt. We come humbly, but we also come in celebration. I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. There's a seat at the table for you. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Join me as we pray. Father God, it is holy and right for us to, to worship you, to celebrate your great name. Lord, uh, you have loved us in creation. You've provided for us all of the things that, that we need. Lord, we're mindful that uh, as we gather today that there are many people in this world who are praying real prayers about their next meal. We pray that you would answer those prayers. We pray for our local food pantry, that you would continue to, to use it to be a blessing to people who are, are, are not sure about where their next meal is going to come from. Lord, we pray today that you would minister to us. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless might be your body, your blood, shed for us that we might live. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>